If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Recent months have been some of the toughest ever for the NHS. Since its creation in 1948, Britain's National Health Service has undergone massive challenges and changes. And its history is a fascinating one. For today's podcast, sub-editor Rhiannon Davies spoke to the historian Susan Cohen, whose latest book traces the history of the NHS, to find out more about the service over the decades from the perspective of both healthcare workers and patients. So, to kick things off, what was health like in England before the NHS, in terms of both the health of its people and the healthcare that was on offer to them? Okay, so if we look at the state of the nation from about 1900 onwards, pre-Second World War, the diseases you would associate with poverty, poor living conditions and overcrowding were normal. And the diseases would have been things like diphtheria, tuberculosis and industrial illnesses. And I'm particularly thinking there of the miners and whales and the connection with Nybevan. Infant mortality rates were still high. Children were very often malnourished and they suffered from things like rickets, which you wouldn't even see today with distorted leg bones. And maternal mortality was high. Now, it's an unfortunate thing that war had a beneficial unintended consequence, actually. But in, if we go on to the Second World War, in 1939, the Ministry of Food was established to ensure that the nation had a very good healthy diet during the war years. Rationing was introduced and resulted in people altering their diets and eating more healthily, so the infant mortality rates went down and life expectancy increased. Now, if we look at the health care that was on offer, very much depended on where you lived in the country, where have we heard that before, and if you had money or not, and I could afford to pay the doctor. Let's say, for example, if you lived near one of the famous London teaching hospitals, like St Thomas's, you were likely to get better treatment than if you only had a local cottage hospital near you with very few beds. Very many people liked the voluntary hospitals, which were part of their community and were maintained by subscriptions and regular contributions. Now, if you were a worker paying a contribution under Lloyd George's 1911 National Insurance Act, you had access to a panel doctor, a general practitioner, but your family didn't. There were very limited treatments available, no antibiotics, and the range of drugs was very limited in comparison to what we're used to now. You had to be on a doctor's panel. Now, industrial towns and cities had far fewer general practitioners. If you lived in a bigger city, you might well have a really good family doctor, but you had to pay. It was around three and sixpence for a visit in the 1930s, and even the middle classes struggled with this, And if they earned more than the wage limit, they were disqualified from the National Insurance Act benefits. Home nursing for the poor was provided largely by the Queen Victoria Jubilee Institute for Nurses, 
whose professionally trained Queen's nurses were employed by a local association and it was paid for by donations and subscriptions. The very poorest people weren't expected to pay, but they, lots of them made donations in kind. Home births were the norm. So you've touched on the Second World War, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the experience of the troops in the First World War, because in your book you talk about how it reveals their poor state of health. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, certainly. And actually what I've thought about is actually what the push factors were for the NHS. And if we look back to just after the Boer War, there was real anxiety then over the health of future generations following the war, Large numbers of men have been rejected as recruits to the army. And when the report of the Committee on Physical Deterioration was published in 1903, it highlighted the dreadful state of health of very many men who were called upon to fight, especially amongst the working classes. So at the time, public health services were very limited. By the 1910s, what public health services there were were provided through a system of charitable voluntary hospitals, which I mentioned, and the workhouses. Some were administered under the poor law through the local government board. Even Florence Nightingale's campaign, in conjunction with Louisa Twining, to improve nursing care in workhouse infirmaries failed. But change was on the way, and I mentioned the National Insurance Act of 1911, which was brought in by the Liberal government, which created a limited form of health insurance, but it was restricted to lower paid workers. And as Anarim Bevin was later to say, was where the Future Health Service Act began. Now, the recruitment of men to fight in the First World War highlighted yet again the poor health of many of those men who enlisted. And it also emphasised the lack of any national provision of health care. Now, 1918 came along, and the government had post-war reconstruction in mind. And then they established a Ministry of Health. And when in 1920, the Dawson Interim Report on the Future Provision of Medical and Allied Services, what a mouthful, was published, it included a bold blueprint for a comprehensive, free national health service, which could adapt to the advances in medicine and technology. But 1920 wasn't the year for it. Another push factor came in 1938 with the Emergency Hospital Service. Regional administration coordinated hospitals and medical staff and it it was a blueprint for what could be done and how it could work. So the realisation that the country wasn't going to be the same after the war, after the Second World War, and then Beveridge's 1942 report and his vision of the role of the state in a post-war nation was absolutely crucial. And he set out to combat the five great evils of society, want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. And the introduction of the National Health Service in 1946 was extraordinary. That the service, but the actual act came in in 46 because the country was bankrupt. So you touched on the 1942 beverage report in your last answer, and you said that it proposed a system of free universal health care paid for by taxes in your book. You also say in your book, although the vast majority of the public favoured the proposed health scheme, doctors most certainly did not. Can you tell us why this was? Well, 
As far as the doctors were concerned, they wanted to maintain their independence and they were very fearful of this new National Health Service that was proposed. They were not going to be able to retain that. They had the support of the British Medical Association and they were worried about their income. They wanted the, the right to preserve their private patients. Eventually, they were persuaded by Nybevan to sign up. And by uh, July the 5th, 1948, 85% of them had, in fact, signed the contract. But that was because Bevan actually said what he said he did was he stuffed their mouths with gold. So he agreed for them to maintain their independence. He agreed that they could still, consultants could still have private practice. And they were satisfied. Can you tell me about day one of the NHS? Oh, day one I find the most extraordinary thing because if you think about it, nothing actually changed. I mean, the national, whatever healthcare there was the day before was exactly the same on, on the first day of the NHS. But all of a sudden, everything was free. You have to remember that the law actually came in in November 1946. So it's nearly two years on before it gets started. And on that day, the NHS took control of 480,000 hospital beds, 125,000 nurses, 5,000 consultants, to say nothing of the GPs, the opticians, pharmacists, dentists and more. And for the first time, all their services were brought together under one umbrella. Now, setting the budget for this NHS was not an easy task, and that is an understatement. And it became apparent very quickly that demand would exceed supply and that it was underfunded. To get an idea of this, the NHS budget for optical services was 3.5 million for the first year, but the actual cost turned out to be 15 million. Patients had to make sure they signed up for their GP and there's recollections of people with long lines of folk queuing in the street to put their names on the list. The whole notion of, uh, we talked about the doctors and the fact that by 5th of July, 85% of them had in fact uh, signed up and the rest were very quick to sign up when they saw how the numbers of patients they were going to have increased and how much money they could actually earn through the NHS. So the whole notion of this medical care being free was astonishing, but it had very different effects on different people. There were some people who were actually embarrassed about going to the doctor and having free medical care and free a free prescription. Um, there was a 20-year-old uh, student of radiology at the Royal Victoria Infirmary who said she couldn't believe that whatever it was you needed that required medical attention was going to be given free of charge. Some people were worried about what their neighbours would think if they went to the doctor and got something for free. So that, you know, is a very interesting comment on actually then what happens with, with free prescriptions as well, which, you know, perhaps we'll get on to talk about. So when you talk about people taking advantage of the NHS, in your book, you draw quite a stark line between a woman with chickenpox who's afraid to go and be seen to take something for nothing. But then you also talk about these women who were pregnant and who were requesting for ambulances when they didn't need them. Can you tell us a bit more about that and people taking advantage of the service? <sighs> 
I mean, the business with the woman who wanted uh, an ambulance to take her to the hospital, I think these were people that maybe it was difficult for them to get there in the first place and they thought, well, the service is there, why shouldn't I use it? But certainly the midwife in that case of the district nurse was not happy about it at all and that was the reason that she commented on it. The young woman who said she who came out in spots the night before, she really was concerned about what her neighbours would think. So there's this underlying feeling about it perhaps being charity and not being something that you were entitled to, which, of course, doesn't go away. There are still people, I would think, of the very older generation who perhaps still feel like that and that don't want to take advantage and the fact it was paid for by taxes and the government made it very clear it was paid for yes. by taxes, that still didn't alleviate the feeling that it was charity? No, it still doesn't seem to have done. That's great, thank you. So going back to one of your earlier answers, you talked about dentists, pharmacists and opticians. Can you tell us a bit more about their role in the early service? Dentists, pharmacists and opticians, well... Dentists were very slow to sign up because they were very worried about their income. And in fact, only 25% of practising dentists had signed up on day one. But what was absolutely incredible was the number of people that suddenly flooded to the dentist. It's a very extraordinary thing to say that because dental care was difficult to come by, you had to go to a teaching hospital, perhaps in queue, and it was expensive. If people had a problem with their teeth, what did they do? They had all their teeth extracted. So there was a vast number of people who had already had dentures. In the first year, I find this incredible, 33 million pairs of dentures were supplied in the first year. And dentists suddenly found that from having between 15 and 20 patients a day, the numbers have gone up to 100. And it was unsustainable, absolutely unsustainable. Uh, I mean, there's a civil servant right up at the top of the chain who said she just could not believe there were so many people who needed their teeth seen to. In the same way, she couldn't believe when the doctors actually signed up that there were so many GPs out there. They were absolutely astounded. Now, the free prescription business, very attractive. And one particular GP I came across, he said he couldn't understand what a particular patient was doing with all the cotton wool that he was asking for. The doctor kept writing out the prescription and then he discovered the man was using it to wash his greyhound with. I know, it was just extraordinary. Um, The problem, I think, was with with the prescription issue and... They couldn't make a a proper projection because up until then, a lot of doctors were dispensing their own medicine. You'd go to the GP. If you were a child, for example, you had a cough, he'd give you the brown medicine. He'd dispense it himself from from the back of the the, uh, practice. So it was an almost impossible situation. And then because people were able to get free prescriptions, there were people that took advantage of it. Um, optical services, there was also huge demand, five times more than anticipated. Free glasses, there was a terrible, terrible delay in actually being able to dispense the prescriptions. And it would be, there could be such a time lag between actually going to the optician, getting the prescription, and then it being sent away to be made up that by the time it arrived, the prescription was wrong. 
And then there are other opticians who remark that people had glasses made up just for the sake of it, just because they could. So would you say, in general then, it was quite beneficial for the dentists, the opticians and the pharmacists, the NHS was a great boon for them? Absolutely, certainly in the early days. I mean, pharmacists were did suffer later on because of the number of prescriptions in there. The amount that they earned through the NHS was gradually reduced. Um, so there were quite strict controls there. And with as far as the opticians were concerned, the number of free spectacles was reduced. And as far as the dentists were concerned, the first charge that was ever made was actually f- uh, for dentures. And that was before any prescription charges were introduced. In your earlier answer, you looked at the idea of um, charges creeping into the service. So with the NHS exceeding its budget to such an extent, this obviously started to happen. Can you tell us about some of the charges that were put in place, why they were imposed and why they were removed by various governments and how this changed over time? Well, the very first charge that came in was actually not for prescriptions. I mean, which really would probably surprise some people, but it was this business over the dentists and the huge number of dentures that had to be provided. So although the legislation was brought in earlier on, it didn't actually, wasn't actually implemented until 1952, and very, very reluctantly. And it was one of the reasons why Nye Bevin then resigned from the government. Um Now, the whole basis of the NHS was that it was going to be free at the point of delivery. And the fact that that charges had to be made, I think it just couldn't be avoided. So after the the dental charge was brought in, then there was a prescription charge brought in. But initially it was per prescription. And you have to remember that on a prescription there could be any number of items. There could have been six or seven items. So people get used to the idea of that. It's then increased again per item, change of governments, and then the charge is removed again, but it has to be reinstated, and it gradually, gradually creeps up until it's then the charge is changed, so it's for per item, which, of course, becomes much more expensive. But I think what you do need to remember is that there have exemptions were brought in, And I actually looked up this morning for some figures and I haven't got anything very, very up to date. But in 2016, for example, 89.4% of prescriptions were issued free of charge. Or if you look at it the other way around, it's actually only 11% of prescriptions that are issued are actually being paid for. So it's very heavily subsidised and it's very expensive. Dental charges crept up. NHS dentists who are quite hard to get onto their list these days do have scales of charges which in comparison to what you would pay for privately are very reasonable. If opticians you can still get a free eye test if you're in certain categories and I think you now can get vouchers toward glasses if you are on income support and and other benefits. As far as the um, when prescription charges were brought in, there was a discussion at the time about the fact that actually it might stop people, and this didn't matter which shade of government it was, 
that if you had a charge for prescriptions, it might stop people going getting prescriptions for things they really didn't need that they could buy over the counter at very low cost. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Children who recorded their memories said they were absolutely terrified because many of them were paralysed. If their breathing was affected, they were put into this terrible iron lung, which was like a big metal coffin. So to move on to a different area then, in your book, you talk about discrimination that some employees have faced in the NHS, particularly male nurses and nurses from the West Indies. Can you elaborate on this? Yes, certainly. As far as male nurses are concerned, and I really find this quite interesting, legal recognition was granted to men in 1919 with the passing of the Nurse Registration Act, but up until 1949 and the Nurses Act, male nurses were listed in the supplementary list. They're really discriminated against. They're not part of the general nursing list. That was abolished in 1949, and they're then included in the general register. But by the early 1950s, only 7% of general nurses, and I stress general nurses, were male. And the figure now is only around 11% of all nurses. Male nurses were stereotyped. Um, Not sure whether they would say they still are today, but they were often associated with military nursing. And of course, at the end of the Second World War, an exemption was made so that male nurses who'd been in the military could take a shortened course, enabling them to then become state registered and work in the National in the Health Service. They often worked in mental health hospitals, which I still think that uh, they're quite heavily involved in mental health care. And they didn't get very good training there at all. Male district nurses, when they were allowed, were only allowed to treat male patients. And the idea of a male midwife, which was allowed after the introduction of the Sex Discrimination Act in 1975, raised some eyebrows. And there was a comment made by one district nurse who was absolutely appalled because she had this curious notion that a male district nurse might get sexually excited by seeing a woman being delivering her baby. So there we are. <laughs> what can I say? Now, as far as some nurses from the West Indies are concerned, yes, there was a big drive in the late 1950s, 60s to encourage nurses to come over from the West Indies, actually in other countries, from Ireland as well and and elsewhere. Most were sent over here to train as state-enrolled nurses, which wasn't a qualified um, qualification back home, which had a very, very bad effect because it meant that when they had qualified, they weren't able to go back because that qualification was absolutely useless. And very many of them that came over wanted to go back home to actually be able to nurse in their own countries. So these SCNs, after their two-year basic training, most of them found they couldn't get onto the higher-level course and they certainly, as one said, couldn't get promoted at all. But the fact was that very many of them were accepting night duties to enable them to fit in with family commitments and they found they were wholly in charge One nurse remembered, she said, we had to get on with all the drugs, the drips, whatever treatment, but our pay remained the same. 
There are others actually that talk about actually facing discrimination from some patients who refused to be cared for them because of their colour and they made quite racist remarks. But in that one particular instance that I found, one nurse said that the sister on her ward wasn't having any of it. She had very sharp words with the patient and the nursing went on as as before and it was diplomatically dealt with. I mean, that's not to say that all nurses from the West Indies came across discrimination because it wasn't the case at all. But it was it was in the population. It was everywhere at that time, which doesn't make it acceptable. It's so interesting. I found that part of your book so eye-opening when you talk about the discrimination those two groups faced and how central they were to the nurses' capacity. Well, I absolutely. Found well, absolutely, most certainly. I mean, I don't know whether the Irish nurses faced such discrimination as well, but they may very well have done because that was also prevalent in society. This is quite topical at the minute with the push towards getting the vaccine for coronavirus, but the NHS is really celebrated for its immunisation drives. Particularly in your book, you touch on measles and polio, And I was really surprised to learn that the response to the nationwide vaccination campaign for polio was initially poor. Can you tell us why this was and why it changed? I think people were probably very nervous, although the epidemics that broke out were absolutely dreadful. And it's when, in 1957, there's an epidemic in Coventry, there's another epidemic in Northern Ireland, and that suddenly had a very powerful impact on people deciding that they wanted to be vaccinated. And that in itself presented a problem because, fancy, there was a problem with supply, with huge demand, and apparently there was a problem with between the local health authorities who wouldn't release vaccines that they had, which weren't actually being demanded by the public at that time, to other areas where there was a huge demand. There was also the death of a footballer, which his name was Jeff Hall, and that was in 1959. That really helped push the the, um, vaccine forward and for people to then decide that it really should be done. And then it was rolled out you know, very quickly. But we should actually remember that actually getting the vaccine out into the market here was also quite fraught. Um, And it was largely down to the National Fund for Poliomyelitis Research in the UK, which was set up by Duncan Guthrie in 1952, and the development of the vaccine then in uh, Belfast by Professor Dick and his team, that came up with that, that with the British version of the vaccine in 1955, which is the only one that would be used here. And then in, by 1962, we had the vaccine, which was administered on, on a sugar lump, which was changed things entirely because it was so easy to dispense. And for anyone that wasn't vaccinated in time and they did get these infectious diseases, what was their experiences like being treated by the NHS? It was horrible. I mean, I'm not saying that the NHS was horrible in itself, but the treatment itself, because there was no cure. So children who recorded their memories said they were absolutely terrified because many of them were paralysed. If their breathing was affected, they were put into this terrible iron lung 
which was like a big metal coffin. It was cold. They were frightened. They were very often unable to have regular, very frequent visits from their parents. It was restricted. If they, when they went home, they very often had to sleep in a plaster cast. That was also cold. And they had, were left wearing calipers on their legs. Long-term effects. So it was a very, very frightening experience. And it didn't, go, it didn't go away because they were left with these disabilities for life. You talk about changing attitudes in your book. And the ones that I really noticed were changing attitudes to family planning and changing attitudes to mental health and the care of mental health. Can you talk through that for us, please? Well, family planning was never going to be part of the NHS in the beginning. It was only when the pill was developed in the 1960s you know, this, the swinging 60s, if this is going to be liberating for women. The pill is introduced in the early 1960s, but the doctors are only able to prescribe it to married women. So there's huge discrimination there. The And generally speaking, that would have been to older women who wanted to, to stop having any more children. They were not necessarily women who didn't want to start families at all. So there's actually a very interesting element there because it's not just about maybe the cost of prescribing it, but there's a moral element to this, that the government don't want to be seen to be advocating what they consider to be promiscuity by allowing single women to to have the pill. And single women use all sorts of subterfuge to try and get hold of the pill and there's a recollection of by one young woman of going to the doctors and sitting in the waiting room and they're there with pretending to be married. I mean, they would just say they're married and they've got a wedding ring. And they're part, as one goes out, they pass the wedding ring round to somebody else so they can go into the doctors and then be prescribed the pill. Um, and it's not until much later in the 60s that then the, it's available through the Family Planning Association for Single Women. Mental health... The Cinderella Service, I mean, the National Health Service inherited the most awful, awful hospitals, um, asylums, as they were known. And it's largely due to actually Enoch Powell's hospital plan in the 1970s that there's already a decision being made that mental health services and asylums need to be closed down and that there should be a move towards mental health care in the community and in smaller local hospitals. The mental health hospitals are gradually sold off and some of these were just the most vast, vast edifices. There was money to be made because they were hugely profit. They were, they were, as far as the value of the property was concerned, it was absolutely enormous. But there's a big disconnect between what happens with setting up of care in the community. It isn't ready. There aren't the facilities there for people with mental health problems, and that does cause issues. There is the attitudes toward people with mental health has definitely improved over the decades. Uh, There's no doubt about it. The introduction of rafts of new drugs to help with psychosis, with depression of all sorts, have changed life for people with mental health issues. And there is a growing realisation 
that a lot of people, in fact, probably most people in society at some time or another, suffer from some mental health issue to one degree or another. So it doesn't have quite the stigma attached to it anymore as it did. People talk about it now. And it's become quite uh, very prevalent for people to talk about it now in connection with COVID as well, because of the effect that being isolated is having on people's mental health. The AIDS crisis ravaged England in the 1980s, as it did the world. How did the NHS respond to this epidemic and what effects did it have on the service? Well, AIDS. 1985, Rock Hudson was the f- announced he had AIDS and he died two months later. So in the UK, there's headlines around about foretelling a plague and stirring up prejudice. But the Department of Health and Social Security and the NHS were very slow to respond. And it was three years after the death of Terence Higgins, who was a, a gay guy, and the establishment of the Sport Trust in his name and their publicity campaign. But the then Health Secretary, Norman Fowler, who was aghast at the attitude that was prevailing towards homosexuals, he set up a special committee. You see then the start of the newspaper ads, but they weren't effective. And then the decision was made to launch a massive health campaign, which wasn't just on the television in 1987. It was in PR campaigns um, and and a leaflet campaign, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the film had a tombstone on it. I mean, there was absolutely no getting away from the fact that this was a deadly, deadly disease and attitudes had to change towards people who were suffering from it and provision had to be made for them. The slogan, don't die of ignorance, was very, very powerful. And there was also, um, Norman Fowler was very, very concerned about the recriminalising of homosexuality. So the campaign was intended to scare people and it did effectively transform attitudes, but it's very gradual. The information leaflet that went out to every household was very, very interesting because there was um, contact tracers. Where have we heard about them? Sent out into the community. And there's one woman, who Irene, who was a health visitor and a trained nurse who was working with a sexual health team. And she recalled going out and knocking on people's doors. And the astonishing thing was one woman who she went to, she knocked on her door and she said, you know, did she know this particular person? And the woman said, yes. She said, well, could she come in and speak to her? And she then had a conversation with her. The girl was astonished. She said, oh, don't worry about that, she said. I'm concerned that you were coming to collect an overdue library book. So where on earth do people think that they're not connected to this business with AIDS? There was another case where she visited a home. She knocked on the door and she said to the man, did he know this person? And he said, yes, well, then I'd like to come in. And his wife was there and she, Irene said to the gentleman, well, you know, this is quite private. Perhaps we should go somewhere. Oh, he said, no, he said, just talk about it in front of the wife who probably was going to be find herself infected as well. So it's quite extraordinary. Uh, it took a long while for attitudes to change. But of course, the crisis wasn't going to go away. Um, huge campaigns after that then for safer sex and people become aware of HIV and AIDS. Um, 
and eventually we get on top of it. The AIDS epidemic was described as the most unprecedented threat to the NHS um, until COVID-19 came this year. What insights can you give into the services response to the pandemic? The services response has been absolutely phenomenal. I understand that there have been great difficulties and there's discussions about what should have been done, what hasn't been done, what could have been done. But generally speaking, the NHS has responded absolutely remarkably. I don't know whether anybody has had the opportunity to watch Hospital, which has followed the Royal Free Hospital Trust and what's been going on there and how they've responded to it. It's put the NHS under unimaginable pressure. It's going to have very, very long-term consequences for everyday treatment for people who've been put on the back burner. How they're ever going to catch up, I really, really do not know. But every effort will be made, I have no doubt about that. But I think, generally speaking, The staff have been remarkable. You know, they've put their lives on the line to save other people. And that is what the NHS has always been about. It's about the staff as well as the patients, because the patients wouldn't get any treatment without the staff. It's been a huge challenge for them. They've responded remarkably. Is there anything that you really wanted to talk about that we haven't got the chance to, that you wanted to Um, talk about quickly? I mean, the only other thing that I would say, actually, as far as the COVID crisis is concerned, is that there's a vast number of unsung heroes and heroines in the NHS as well, because there's all the support staff. And I think also particularly the community nursing staff, which are often overlooked, who are also doing the most remarkable job out there in the community with people who are isolated, who can't get to hospital, who won't go to hospital and who need support and they do need recognition. That was Susan Cohen. Her book, The NHS, Britain's National Health Service, 1948-2020, is available now published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.